Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Planning to travel? It always helps if you have the right guide. And when it comes to New York City, folks, I have the perfect one for you today, especially if you're a film fan, because he literally just wrote the book on it. That's right. Today on the podcast, I am so honored to have back my talented friend and the author of the new book, Fun City Cinema. Mr. Jason Bailey is with us to tell us all about his new critically acclaimed nonfiction work and break down a few films along the way. A gifted film writer, critic, and historian who's the editor-in-chief of the site Crooked Marquee, an author of four additional books on film, and a freelance journalist with bylines everywhere from the New York Times, Vulture, The Playlist, and beyond. Jason, it is so great to have you here. How are you doing, and how is this incredibly busy and exciting fall shaping up for you so far? Oh, thank you. You always give the sweetest introduction. Thank you so much. I feel I feel semi-accomplished after listening to that. You um, it's, are. Been it's it's been good. It's been a little nuts, so it's you know, um, this is the fifth book, but sort of the biggest one to date in terms of profile and and publisher and and those sorts of things. So I've I've been doing a lot of promotion um and also you know we we sort of purposefully timed it so that the second season of the podcast which is sort of a spinoff of the book was rolling out around the same time so you know been doing a lot of work on that and then in addition the usual sort of freelance stuff so it's been it's been busy but it's a good busy it's 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 i haven't had to do anything i haven't had a great time doing over the past few months so it's it's good I am so glad. Couldn't happen to a better writer, nicer guy. So I'm just very excited for you. And I just want to say congratulations again on Fun City Cinema, which I'm very eager to read. The Companion Podcast, which everyone listening should be sure to check out. And all of the related success from starred reviews to these cool sounding Alamo Draft House hosting gigs you've been doing across the country. I know we talked last year about the book, but for anyone who might be unaware, what can you tell us about Fun City Cinema, the book, the podcast, and also just what you set out to do as a film historian and author? Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, the um, the book is, uh, it's basically, it's a 100-year dual history of, of New York City and New York City movies and their various intersections through that century. And we it's told in, um, in 10 chapters. Each chapter covers a decade. Each uh, chapter focuses on sort of a quintessential New York movie of that de- decade as mm-hmm. sort of the primary prism. Okay. Um, but, you know, with additional sort of side essays and, and, and back alley journeys into other films and things like that. But basically the idea being that New York is that the history of New York cinema and the history of New York itself are sort of intermingled uh, inextricably. Mm-hmm. And that every movie that we think of sort of as a great New York movie is that way partially because of what was happening in the city at that time and how those events seeped into the movie consciously or not. Um, so in, yeah. in, 
so in each chapter, you know, it's it's I'm trying to do kind of a combination of the production history and and reception of the film, but also sort of the key events or events in New York in that period that that kind of make that movie so relevant and make it the quintessential New York movie of that decade um, by sort of diving into New York's in politics and uh, gentrification in New York um, and all the sort of different ways that the city has changed mm-hmm. over the course of that century because it's an ever-changing city. Um, so that was the book. And the book uh, I had just turned in, I think, not long after or not long before we spoke last year because we were, I think, talking the the, the first summer of the pandemic. Yes, um, yeah, it's been a while. And then not long after that, you know, um, I have, I have a, my, my best friend, Mike Hull, who is a, a documentarian, he has a terrific documentary I have to plug on HBO Max right now called uh, Betrayal at Attica, which is about the, the Attica uprising. Um, and it's just, it's phenomenal. And I, I'd say that if he wasn't my best friend. But okay. um, we've been collaborating on, you know, films and documentary projects. And, and he had been doing some podcast work. And so, you know, we had been talking about doing a, a podcast that was purely promotion. You know, the idea initially would just, you know, we'll do an episode for each chapter and we'll have a guest and we'll just shoot the shit for an hour and that'll be our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, the summer, uh, you know, after I turned in the book, I was sort of getting antsy and, you know, looking for, for, for a creative outlet of some kind. And there were things happening in the world that seemed to relate to some of the things that we were looking into in the book and some of the films that that I had gotten into. And also there was a lot of stuff that there just wasn't room for in the book that I still wanted to write about and talk about because, you know, you can only fit so much yes. into a 100, <laughs> 100 year history. And so that initial idea of just sort of a, of a, of a chat podcast uh, transformed into this idea of doing kind of a, a, a nonfiction narrative storytelling podcast that is edited like a documentary because that's, you know, his background specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in each episode and, and we're, we're finishing up the second season right now. In fact, I just finished the last script for the last episode today. Um, but we have the, we've done, a, we'll end up with a total of 10 episodes and each one, you know, uh, delves into a film or a group of films that are that are thematically connected, that are important to New York's history, and then connect it to New York's history, and also when we can connect it to what's happening in New York and in America right now. Oh, um, yeah. And we do we do that with the help of you know of, of political commentators and film critics and historians and authors and actors and filmmakers and you know just a real we you know we talk to everybody on the podcast you know, from, uh, from my film critic pals to Martin Scorsese, you know, like we, we yes. just, we try to get, I saw every, that name whole, and I was so ecstatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The, the whole spectrum of, of sort of, uh, of perspectives. And so I'm uh, in a weird way, what was supposed to be, again, this sort of crass promotional tool for the book ended up kind of becoming its own thing. And a thing that I'm as proud of as I am of the book. Um, yeah. but as a result, you know, uh, this, you know, usually you turn in a book, uh, after spending however many years you spend on it. In this case, I had spent almost three years when I turned it in. And then usually, you know, you take a break from it and come back to it in a year or so when it's time to promote it. And instead, it's just been another solid, like, year and a half of still living in this world of New York movies and New York history and, and how they, they tie together. 
Yeah. And it's hard to put that behind you. I can only imagine three years. My goodness. Uh, And that, of course, includes how many movies? I'm sure you probably kept a tally or maybe not. I did. No, I did. (laughs) I certainly did. How many did you watch? Uh, How many did you write about? I watched or rewatched a total of just south of about 300 movies um, over over the course of of the project. so, you know, and and because of New York cinema history being what it is, you know, it's it's a little lopsided to more recent stuff just because many more films were were shot in New York after about 1966, which, you know, we get into why that is in the book. But um, but yeah, you know, there was and I would say it was probably, I don't know, about about a 50 50 mix of things I had seen before and things that I hadn't. Um, mm-hmm. which honestly is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. Like when you're thinking about writing a new book and sort of the questions you're asking yourself, yeah. one of the questions is like, okay, well, what, what kind of, what, what movies do I want to spend the next two or three years watching? And what, how can this be an excuse to finally see things I've always wanted to see? Um, and so that was a big one, you know, that I had, that there, yeah. that there were so many New York movies that I just hadn't made my way to. And so this sort of gave me the opportunity to check them out. But yeah, all in about 300 or so. Yeah. That really keeps it interesting too, because, you know, it's probably once you're in the middle, I would guess of that three years, or maybe Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was like for you to keep motivated. It had to be very hard, very daunting because you're in the weeds, you're working on this yourself in the library. I'd love to talk about for the process of how you set about knowing exactly which films you wanted to choose, how to find the movies. Cause I'm wondering, did you um, ask your friends to hunt these down for you or how did you get access to everything? Did you have to go to the library of Congress with the people in the little white gloves, you know, tracking down <laughs> these movies. Nell Minow told me all about that. And I was so right. envious. Yes. It was like, right. I need to go to DC. Yes. <laughs> I didn't have to do that to get a hold of films. Um, okay, cool. But there were there were a handful <clears throat> that were a lot of trouble to, to track down that like that that weren't readily available, that weren't streaming anywhere, that weren't uh, rentable, or that you know the New York Public Library has a tremendous DVD library, which was a huge you know resource for me. But there were some that you know there were some of these movies that like hit VHS and that was it. You know. Yes. Um, yeah. So I was having to use, uh, you know, uh, rent by mail services that like aren't even around anymore that were sort of on their last legs to get like VHS versions of things and, mm-hmm. you know, make make digital versions of, of those, you know, some things I bought, some things I, I rented, uh, some, some things I torrented, I, you know, I'll, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll own that. So, um, some things I had to like, you know, someone had put sort of a, a, a poor quality version of it on YouTube and I watched it that way, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, but in terms of getting that list together, like it really, I mean, I just sat down and made a list at the beginning of everything that I wanted to try to watch. Okay. Um, and then had to prune that down to what I would reasonably actually have time to watch. Um, I came up with the list of the 10 fairly early. Um, okay. Oh, just the 10 sort definitive. Of the, 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 the 10 big ones, because, you yes. know, you can sort of work out from there. Um, and so I came up with those 10 fairly early, just in terms of general ideas I had about how that movie told the story about New York in that era. Okay. Um, sometimes that required a little tweaking, but the, that, that 10 held pretty solid. Um, and then I made a list of another, I don't know, a hundred or so 
that I was like, okay, these seem like the ones I need to see, the ones I know about, the ones I've seen or that I know I want to see. And then honestly, I posted that list on Twitter and said, hey, film Twitter, what great New York movies are not on this list? Mm-hmm. And got a lot more from that. You know, that was where a lot of the sort of more deeper cuts uh, came from, from, you know, from some of my, my, my friends who, especially sort of more obscure genre stuff and sort of like weird low budget, like uh, Brooklyn horror things from the eighties and stuff like that, oh, yeah. you know, that, that I, that I might not have thought of um, came from that. Uh, so that was the, you know, the, but, but that process was, was pretty, pretty straightforward in terms of, of getting those materials. The thing that I spent a lot of time at the library for was, um, was just for our sort of archival uh, newspaper and magazine coverage. Like that is, you know, for me as a huge part of telling the story of a movie is to find everything you can that was written when it was being made, when it was released, getting a temperature of that initial reception. Um, that's, that ended up being a huge part of, of, of the book for me. Um, and that honestly came from, um, from a really helpful, uh, coffee date that I had with Mark Harris. Okay. Uh, who is, uh, Mark is one of my writing heroes. I think he's, he's sort of peerless right now in terms of, of, of writing books about movies that are about more than movies. And uh, reading Pictures at a Revolution and Hardback when it came out sort of really recalibrated my brain in terms of what kind of writing I wanted to do at some point. Mm-hmm. But I never, but, you know, without ever feeling like I might be ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first four books are basically critical books, you know. Yes. Uh, but I knew that this one was going to be much more than that, that there would be much more research uh, and analysis and his- and history involved mm-hmm. in it. And I, I sort of realized that, oh, right, I'm kind of writing a Mark Harris book. And then I said to myself, well, luckily I have access to Mark Harris, so I can ask him how to do that. <laughs> that always <laughs> <And> helps. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. You know, so I just, I sent him a message and I, and I was very upfront. I said, I hope you take this in the spirit in which it's intended, which is complimentary, but I'm, my, I'm working on my next book. It's a Mark Harris book, basically. Can you help me? tell me how to write that and he said yeah let's let's get coffee and let's talk and so we met up at Lincoln Center and uh chatted for you know an hour or two and he told me that you know and he gave me a lot of great advice for for writing this kind of a book in terms of of organizing and you know and, and the research process but the most valuable thing he gave me by a long shot was um to go to the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts um, to go to the clippings file and go to the card catalog. It's still a hard, uh, like a card, you know, no card, card catalog. Hard catalogs, yes. <laughs> and he said somehow the, the the librarians at that library have a file of every significant movie, uh, every significant filmmaker, actor. You just go in and you find that card catalog and you fill it out and they will bring you a magical folder that's full of clippings. Wow. And in the back of my head, I was like, they can't be true. And no, it's it's 100% true. And so yes. I spent hours and hours and hours at that library just combing through any clipping file that I thought might be remotely relevant to the stories I was trying to tell. And that also has ended up being a huge resource just as a freelance writer, you know? Um, yeah. Now when, you know, I can pitch 
an anniversary piece on a movie that came out 20 years ago. And then I can go get the clipping file and like, that's most of the research, like, and that's stuff that's not online. That's not stuff you can Google most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, so that was a, that was a huge part of, of, of the research process for me. Yes. And in talking to Mark Harris and he talked about organization and how to go about writing this because it is a massive amount of years, a huge undertaking. Did you work like a decade at a time or some decades you knew you would need to spend like three months on some longer, like how did that work? And were you able to look for some research in like 1970s at the card catalogs, but then in the back of your mind, you're going, well, okay, but I'm writing the 1930s part or how did you do that? Yeah. My brain can't function in more than one uh, decade at a time. I know I Um, need to focus. So I'm like, I absolutely have to. Yeah. Well, no, I had to change my entire sort of research and writing process on this book from, as I, from the one I had on the first four, because on those, you know, they, the, the subject matter was much more focused, was much Mm -hmm. smaller basically. Um, and also at the time that I wrote all of those, I had a full-time staff job. I was, I was working for flavor wire, which was a nine to five Monday through Friday gig. And so I had to, to organize and, and work and research and write with those things in mind. So the way that those books worked was I spent on each of them, you know, six to nine months just doing straight research, just okay. reading, that everything, makes sense. Watch, yes. reading everything, watching everything, taking copious notes, uh, organizing notes, but not actually sitting down to write anything of substance until I was totally done with research. And then I would take a couple weeks off work and just bang out a first draft, um, which would be like not nothing that I would want anyone to read, but just everything on the page in roughly the order it needed to be read. Uh, Because I can't, I can't write that. I can't write a book chapter you know, an hour or two at a time here or there, the way you can like knock out a review or an essay or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, no. I, yeah. if I'm, if, if I'm doing that, I have to be able to take the day for it. Mm-hmm. So that was how the first ones worked and it worked fine for those, but I knew right away, I was like, okay, well, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to remember the details of the book I read about the 1920s when I get no. to the end of this thing. So I got to rethink this entire process. Now, luckily I guess, luckily, by that time, I was no longer uh, a full-time employee of anyone. It's a freelancer. And the good thing is you do have a bit more flexibility uh, with your schedule. So the way that I did this one was basically I I sat down with like a two-year calendar and I blocked out, you know, roughly six to eight weeks for each decade slash chapter, depending on um, how much material I knew that there would be, how many movies there would be to watch, so forth. So, you know, for like the seventies, which I knew would be like cuckoo bananas, yes. the one that I wanted <laughs> to spend the most time on, I blocked out like the full, you know, eight or nine weeks for that one. I can't but, imagine. Yeah. But so I blocked out, you know, a, a six to eight week research period where I read all the things and I watched all the things and I went through the clippings files and so forth. And then I blocked out a week to, to write a draft of that one chapter. Oh, wow. Um, and then when that week was done, I took that chapter and I put it away and I forgot about it. And then I moved on to the next chapter, you know, and spent mm-hmm. six to eight weeks researching that and then put a, spent a week writing that chapter. And then, you know, after I'd done a few, I would go back and start looking at the first one again and I could start revising. 
Um, but I did that chapter by chapter for, you know, roughly two years and then spent um, a couple of months at the end of that, then revising, editing, rewriting, mm-hmm. synthesizing, making it a coherent yeah. uh, book. But I, I had to sort of tackle it, at, you know, like each chapter was just kind of like its own book um, in order to not get completely lost in, in the 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 massive material that there was to to take in. Yeah. And a lot of this with research and I'm sure you hit up sources that was in that same six to eight week period or later on, were you thinking I need to talk to these filmmakers or these actors who keep showing up in things, uh, producers, were you just kind of, no, I need them in this period and that's it. Or were you, you know, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. And that's kind of an area where I failed a bit um, because, well, because I can't, one piece of advice that Mark gave me was do your interviews early because you never know what's going to happen. Oh yeah. Um, And I had confirmed a lot of, I confirmed a lot of people uh, early on because sort of having those confirmed interviews in the proposal helped sell the proposal. But um, I, I am so I, I'm not a seasoned interviewer. I've done some, but not a lot. And I get very Mm -hmm. insecure about it. And so I didn't want to interview anyone unless I was really researched and like loaded for bear and ready to talk to them. And so as a result, yes, I didn't end up really interviewing people until I was in the thick of that decade. That bit me in the ass because um, when I was gathering those original confirmations, I had uh, I confirmed an interview with Larry Cohen. Oh, um, wow. And his people were like, yeah, let's do, can you do next Thursday? Like they, mm-hmm. they were ready to go. And I did not feel ready to talk to Larry Cohen. I wanted to rewatch all the movies and have, Oh yeah. I am the same so, way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, Oh no, no, no. I'm just doing a confirmation for now. I'll be back in touch in a few months and we'll, you know, we'll set it up then. Da, 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 da. And then two months later he passed. Oh, um, no. And yeah. so I didn't get that interview and I, and I, I kick myself for that all the time. Yeah. So it, it there to some extent writing a big book is to is about managing your own OCD like it is about sort of it is trying, yeah trying we've talked about those ways. drafts you make yes yes <laughs> it's you know it really is about trying to you know I, I wish I had I had sort of had a a better ability to multitask um, that work and you know so that was that's that 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 one stung a little bit but it really is the the way my brain works. It's the way I work as a writer is kind of the way I had to do it. So, you know, and you can see the downside with what happened with Larry Cohen, of course, but at the same time, when you have all of that uh, information that you've researched at your fingertips or it's fresh in your mind, you're going to ask probably more articulate uh, questions. The conversation yes. might be at a different level than you would. Absolutely. Yeah. So I can see both sides of that. And I'm the exact yeah. same way about uh, needing to be zeroed in on a project. So, yep. yeah. 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 No, you know, and, and when, and, and when you've done, and when you are that prepared, you can actually have a conversation with someone yeah. instead of just reading, reading a list of questions, which is, is too often what I end up doing when I'm nervous in an interview. Yes, same. Well, one of my favorite things about Jason is his passion for all film. You and I both share a love of the Marx Brothers, Chaplin, and the classics, but 
Yes. Also, I love how you seek out the obscure as a film fan and writer in today's movies are no exception, the ones you chose, currently streaming as part of the massive New York City collection available on the Criterion channel. For our discussion, we sought out to look for some deep cuts. And of course, Jason delivered. He selected four titles that I had not seen, or at least in the case of the Neil Simon movie, I couldn't fully remember. We'll go into the films, including The Garment Jungle from 1957, The Incident, made a decade later, The Out-of-Towners from 1970, and 1971's Little Murders in a moment. But before we do that, I would love to know what it is about New York City and its diverse films that inspires and interests you the most. I think... Honestly, it's that I feel like every great New York movie is actually two movies, that it is a story in the foreground and in the background, it's a documentary about New York in that moment. Um, And I think part of this is a result of, of moving to New York when I did, which was in 2006 and seeing things in the city that I recognized from movies, but that had changed. Yes. Um, and becoming very aware very quickly of, of what a work in progress New York City is, that it's a constant changing, that the landscape of it, the cityscape of it, the look and the feel of the city is in constant flux. And that each sort of great New York movie, even some, some not so great New York movies, offer, if nothing else, a snapshot of what the city was exactly at that moment and not one moment longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so I feel like, in a way, the, and, and this sort of is what I arrived at in the book, in a way, these films are, you know, there are their works of art, their works of commerce, but because of the city being what it is, the great New York movies that are shot on location in New York in the present tense are also sort of like an act of archaeology, you know, like they're, they are capturing that city on a Polaroid. uh, And you can always go back to that and have an idea of, of what that was. That's Um, brilliant. Yes. I think that's important. I just, I really think it's important because it's a city that, that, uh, is always changing and that people are always saying was better in the previous era. Um, And, uh, but, you know, this is a way to sort of have that experience of, of living here in a different time, but to have it, you know, from a safe distance in a lot of ways. Yeah. And one thing I know we talked about it the last time you were here about growing up in the Midwest and then seeing the big city, of course, in film and one important thing is once you move there you have sort of that memory of always seeing Mm -hmm. these in films and how you felt watching them as an outsider and now as an insider a new yorker and so i think that gives you a unique perspective on this yeah definitely i mean you know it's i was uh talking to someone recently and they were like so were you were you born and raised here and i was like no i was born and raised in wichita kansas and yes. then I moved to New York when I was 30. And these are the only two places that I've lived are these very, these two very different uh, places, you know, and, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I grew up watching New York movies. And then one of the first movies that I saw in a theater 
after we moved here was we went to a revival screening of, of the taking of column one, two, three of the original column one, two, three. And my wife was going to school at NYU and there's a scene in it. You've seen the movie, I'm sure. Oh yeah. When they're doing, <laughs> when they're doing, you know, the, the sort of high speed uh, money transfer, you know, and they, they plow down Astor place and where the, where the police car flips. Oh yeah. Um, that's, that was right by the building where my wife's graduate classes were. So the first time we see that, I'm like, oh, that's right by your school. And, and I said, and it sounds like a cliche because it is. Oh, right. There's a Starbucks there now. You know what I yes. mean? And that, <laughs> that sort of dichotomy, the Pelham uh, cop car flip is where there's a Starbucks now, might be the entire book in a nutshell, you know? Um, the other one is that uh, the Lyric Theater where Travis Bickle takes um uh betsy to see the porn movie is now the theater that's there now is where they do the harry potter play like that's <laughs> that's the move that's the city's shift over you know yeah. 45 years in, in a nutshell yes perfect well kicking things off we have what might be might be my favorite of the four films surprisingly perhaps because i just love very timely b noirs and director Vincent Sherman's 1957 film, The Garment Jungle, based on the article Gangsters in the Dress Business by Lester Villai and scripted by Harry Kleiner is just that. A Columbia quickie, efficiently made and executed at a terse 88 minutes, The Garment Jungle is essentially the garment district's answer to On the Waterfront. And yes. even yep, even starring Lee J. Cobb as well, as the film opens, Korean war veteran Alan Mitchell, played by Kerwin Matthews, gets a cold wake-up call when he discovers that his father... Lee J. Cobbs, Walter Mitchell's company, Roxton Fashions, has been paying protection money to the mob to keep the union out. Everything changes, however, when people not only get tuned up, but are killed, including Walter's own business partner who sympathized with the union. The more Alan looks into what's going on, including befriending union organizer Robert Loggia and getting a crush on the man's beautiful wife, played by Gia Scala, the more he can't let his dad and the mob keep up business as usual. I really liked this one, as I mentioned before, especially Logia and Scala, and would love to hear your thoughts. Here's the thing. I'm going to make a confession to you right now. I had not seen this movie oh, until, I watched, okay, it, cool. until I watched it for this one, uh, for, to, so we could talk about it. Um, this is one of the things that I, that I really love about that Criterion selection, and one of the reasons that I kind of wanted to to pick stuff from it was that I like the fact that it was full of deep cuts and that there were movies, there are movies in that collection that I was unable to find oh, when wow. I was making the book or that were very hard to track down. Um, you know, little murders never streams. It's never available for digital rental. Uh, it had only, I think got a, a you know, a, a Blu-ray release overseas. Um, and that was one where I I had had to rent a VHS version of Little Murders from like a mail order company, you know, to, <laughs> to, to watch it for the film. So um, Garment Jungle is not one that's that's usually easy to come by. Um, it's it is in the Columbia Noir Volume One set from Indicator, but again, that's a that's a, an overseas uh, set that I did not have at the time, or it may not have even been out. 
at the time that I was researching the book. Yeah. And so when that collection came up, I was like, well, there's about there's a handful of these that I haven't even seen. So, you know, I I, I honestly I picked that one because I wanted to have an excuse to finally watch it. Um, Perfect. And you're bang on. Yes, it is very much a uh, uh, garment district on the waterfront that that influences keenly felt. Um, also a big sort of, you know, the a lot of these 1950s New York films were very much made in the shadow of the naked city. Yeah. Um, which is the 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 focal film of, of the 1940s chapter in the book and was oh, okay. a huge deal when it came out. And I think it's I think it's in the, the Criterion program as well, I'm pretty sure. Um, but it was a huge deal because it was you know, films were generally not shot in New York at that time, even if they were set in New York. Um, they would either just, you know, every studio had a New York street uh, on their back lot, you know, that was sort of made to look kind of like yes. a New York <laughs> neighborhood. Um, you know, and maybe they would use stock footage for, you know, to sort of establish the scene at the beginning, you know, the skyline shot from someone's stock footage. At best, they would maybe send a second unit crew out for like a day or two to get some exteriors or stuff. And that was kind of how they did it. And The Naked City was huge because it was, you know, Mark Hellinger, the producer, was a native New Yorker, was kind of a legendary New Yorker. And that was the hook that he came up with. Like, it was a gimmick, mm -hmm. the idea that this film was shot entirely in New York City. Um, but after it came out and was a success, there was this sort of strain of, of New York noir and New York police procedurals and things, you know, these, these, again, like you said, really sort of lean and mean, black and white. A lot of them were B-movies uh, that at least shot in part in the city. And I think you can see the Garment Jungle. There are some things that, that are, you know, I'm sure most mm -hmm. of the interiors were shot, you know, in Los Angeles. But there's a lot of really great uh, exterior stuff and a lot of sort of out on the streets of the city things um, that are that are a lot of fun. It's it's And, and also it has that feeling um, which, and this may seem like a strange comparison, but it has that kind of uncut gems feeling. Of, oh, it's stressful. Yes. Of, well, the, not just the stress, but uh, that it feels like it's told kind of, it is, it's capturing the way a very specific section of the city works, you know? Yeah. Um, the garment district is not far from the, the diamond district in Midtown Manhattan. And so in the same way that, you know, that you can tell that the Safdie brothers like spent a lot of time there and sort of learned just how that, that, that scene worked. We get a sense of that I, I, in this film as well. And I'm always a sucker for that, for sort of just getting an idea of, of how things work in this particular little enclave, you know, how the, how the politics and power, uh, which are always personal, uh, but how those sort of collide and, and, and how, uh, of course, the mob is involved in all of that. So yeah, I, I I enjoyed it quite a bit, honestly. I did too. And bringing up uncut gems, yeah, it's a very sweaty, very yes. urgent. Like you're following these people, and you feel like you're just mm -hmm. encountering them. Kind of a docudrama feel. Uh, you yes. mentioned the Naked City, and that reminded me of uh, all the films that followed, especially in New York, like Side Street, which was you yes. know quick and dirty, great. Film Noir by Wonderful. Anthony Mann. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you also mentioned the Columbia box sets from Indicator. I wrote on the Chicago Syndicate film, yeah. which uh, 
in their new set and it's one I had never seen before it was another quick Columbia movie very efficient shot on the streets of Chicago so that was really cool and yeah yeah, I think it's you picked a good one there for the 40s of uh, the Naked City and what it led to exactly yeah well yeah and I mean and it it, it is key in sort of uh, the the turn towards these sort of police procedurals as well i mean like you can you can pinpoint a lot of movies of the 50s that the naked city influenced but also in a a very big way like that's the original like that's the pilot episode of law and order in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways you know like those all those law and order shows um are are sort of doing what the naked city was doing in in, you know the late 19 (laughs) the late 1940s um i'm glad you mentioned loja uh who I thought was so great in this, but I swear to God, like I paused the movie and looked on IMDb after about his third scene, because like when he first came in, I'm like, wow, who's this guy who kind of reminds me of Robert Loja? Yes. There's there's (laughs) no way that could have been Robert Loja. He wasn't that old, was he? I know. I I was genuinely surprised. It was like, no, that's actually Robert Loja. He's actually been around that long. Um, And I also sort of uh, uh, quietly enjoyed the, circularity of uh a la scarface of, of him playing a um a hispanic character like, yes okay. i know with yeah. gia scala another italian you got the yes. two italians yes very yes. funny <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and and also can't can't throw enough love to uh to richard boone who oh, so uh so good and so scary and weirdly one of these an, an actor who i was only sort of vaguely aware of until about the last few months where just he keeps popping up in old Westerns and things that I've just been watching, um, you know, as lockdown movies for whatever reason, you know, uh, like of I, I di- yeah, dived into, I, I had never watched, uh, you know, the, the Randolph Scott, uh, Bud Bedeker films until me neither. Yeah. Yeah. They hooked me uh, right away. Yep. Absolutely. And, and he's amazing in, uh, whichever one of those he's in. And now I feel like a schmuck for bringing it up. Um, uh, and I also have seen him in a couple of John Wayne movies lately. And he's just like, he's, he's, he's a terrific villain because he's never just a villain. There's mm-hmm. always something psychologically interesting happening with him. Um, yes. And Sherman and, is such a good director of actors too. When I was yes. looking him up, I was like, wow, he directed, you know, Bogart and Ida Lupino mm-hmm. and Betty mm-hmm. Davis. And yes, again and again, all these great actors. So even though he's making this cheap film or a quick movie, I mean, sure. he's bringing that um, credibility and all of his experience to it. And it pays off yep. with these actors and the way he directs yeah. them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So yes, this was a very good discovery then. I'm glad you brought this one up. Yes, me too. (laughs) I felt like a real smuck if I suggested it and then it turned out to be a stinker. (laughs) No, so good. But the rest of the films, including The Incident, The Out-of-Towners, and Little Murders, deliver three variations on the same theme. So it makes sense to discuss them together. Released over the same four-year span and all dealing with the crime and unrest of the city and the way that New York life might just, if not conquer you, then at least drive you insane. Our first film, based on a 1963 TV movie called Ride with Terror, was directed by Larry Pierce as The Incident in 1967, a harrowing and at times still quite hard to watch psychological thriller about two criminals played by 
Tony Musante and newcomer Martin Sheen, who terrorized 14 passengers on the same subway car. The film co-stars Bo Bridges, Ruby D, Jack Guilford, Ed McMahon, Donna Mills, Gary Merrill, Thelma Ritter, Brock Peters, and Jan Sterling. Jumping ahead then three years to 1970, our second film directed by Arthur Hiller and written by that early bard of New York City, Mr. Neil Simon, uses his insider's view to tell the story of two outsiders. In this case, that's the titular out-of-towners, played by the wonderful Jack Lemon and Sandy Dennis of the suburban Ohio Kellermans who survive a hellish 24-hour period where everything that can go wrong does go wrong as the couple travels to New York for Jack Lemon's job interview. A definite work of uncomfortable cringe comedy and a great preview of coming attractions for Simon, who would soon script Bruce J. Friedman's short story, A Change of Plan, for Elaine May as the Heartbreak Kid, which I just discussed with Peter Avellino in my Charles Grodin episode. The Out of Towners also makes for quite a darkly funny double feature with our third film, actor Alan Arkin's directorial debut, Little Murders from 1971, based upon the play by Jules Pfeiffer, a pitch black comedy that was originally written by Pfeiffer in response to the madness going on in the 1960s before and after the Kennedy assassination. The film stars Marsha Rod as the indefatigable New Yorker unwilling to let the violence and chaos of the city, including shootings, garbage strikes, muggings, heavy breathers on the phone, and more get her down. She tries to recruit Elliot Gould's dispassionate, apathetic nihilist to her way of thinking, getting engaged to the photographer and taking him home to meet one of the strangest families ever seen on film. <laughs> Unlike anything I had ever seen before and a truly great find, find for fellow fans of Elliot Gould. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the insanity of the big apple in the incidents, the out of towners and little murders. Yeah, this is a, you know, I didn't realize that I, I really was sort of picking three, like, you know, New York is a shithole movies, um, <laughs> but they do, but you know, it's interesting because they address it in, in kind of different ways. Yeah. Um, that, you know, we just did an episode of the podcast about subway movies um, and talked a bit about the incident on that. We mostly focused on, on Pelham one, two, three um, and on the warriors, but we, we, we brushed up against the incident and also a movie that came out around the same time, maybe a year or two before called uh, Dutchman, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, and just the idea of these films where, uh, you're trapped on the train together, um, yeah, held so hostage, yes, yep. claustrophobia and intensity and sort of clashing personalities and the, uh, the you know, the idea that, um, that on each subway car, you can kind of have like a mini, you know, a little microcosm of the city, a little melting pot of, of different character types. Mm -hmm. um, and the incident I think is, is, is really interesting because yeah, it leans into the sort of sweaty intensity and scariness of being on the train late at night. Yeah. Um, the out of towners is, uh, you know, obviously a more comedic approach. Um, and I, and I love the idea of, um, of Neil Simon, who is sort of a quintessential New Yorker, or at least was yes. at that time, um, writing from the out-of-town perspective, which I think is, is really kind of fascinating. Um, 
And, uh, and then, you know, and that one sort of being kind of a midpoint in terms of, of approach and tone and then little murders, which is just like outright nihilism. almost. Yes. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it is really a, a dark comedy does not quite even do it justice. No. Um, but I think, you know, what's, uh, what's interesting about little murders in, in the, the sort of cycle of, of, of comedy in New York. You know, because when we think about, you know, the great New York movies of the 70s, a lot of them are, you know, these sort of urban nightmares are things like, you know, like Taxi Driver, like Death Wish, like Dog Day Afternoon. Um, but the, the the New York comedies of the era were certainly not mirthful either, no. you know, and they, they're, you know, and you were talking about things like Little Murders, like Where's Papa, uh, like the out-of-towners, where the, you know, the, the jokes are born out of fear of getting mugged and mm-hmm. the dangers of central park and uh and just sort of the general anxiety of, of urban life um and little murders really goes all the way with that um you know and, and i think that's kind of what i what i like about it so much is that it it does not pull any punches you know and um and is to an extent that's almost alienating, you know, and, and I also love the fact that that Gordon Willis shot it. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's, I know. I was like, did I just see that name in the credits? (laughs) Like what? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is pre, you know, this is years before he's working with Woody Allen or anything like at that time, Gordon Willis was not who you got to shoot your, like your light comedy. Like this was, you know, Clued and Godfather era. Um, But that, you know, that sort of bleakness and 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 then finding humor in that bleakness Mm -hmm. i think is is really admirable and really tricky um and doesn't and it doesn't always land but when it does it's really rewarding and then also when the film takes turns into serious territory it's not a big jump um no that 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 really wrenching monologue that elliot gould gives at the, the kitchen table is like is sad and dark yes. and but, uh, but kind of funny um alan arkin when he finally appears when he makes his little you know his brief appearance and with just this this monologue of of unhinged paranoia is yeah is really great um though that sort of of, of bleakness um I, you know the film was not well received at the time by really by critics or commercially uh, i think it was quite a bit ahead of its time because that sort of that sort of really dark 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 comedy uh is is certainly something we see more of now um and then in terms of of the out of towners you know i i love the fact that it's sort of and one of those everything that can go wrong will go wrong comedies which those those always land for me you know especially when they're in that kind of tight time yeah. frame you know what i mean it's very um, after hours kind of thing yeah yes everything yes, keeps in, going wrong yes yes exactly you know and the fact that they arrive in the middle of a transit strike and a sanitation strike and a rainstorm is just like is so perfect and also, but also accurate to the era, like the late sixties and the early seventies, those, you know, the, the transit strikes, the sanitation strikes, like those were, those were real problems in the city was, you know, the trying to, to, to keep all of the city services intact and keep, you know, the budgets funded and all of that sort of thing. Um, the scene where she kind of gives that long speech in the bathroom 
uh, towards the end of the movie about how and why she doesn't want to live there mm-hmm. is it is sort of in the same spirit as as some of those long speeches in Little Murders. Like it is, you know, again, you yeah. can tell that Jules, you can tell that Jules Pfeiffer and Neil Simon were both playwrights mm-hmm. um, because they're not afraid to take those sort of theatrical moments. Um, but uh, but yeah, and and Sandy Dennis um, was an actor who I hadn't had a I, I didn't really I hadn't seen a lot of her work. I didn't mm-hmm. have really strong feelings about her before I embarked on the book, but she clearly was an actor who was like who was a new york actor who was working in new york making new york movies in this sort of golden era late 60s early 70s and so i saw a lot of sandy dennis in the process of making the book and i love her now i think she she so personified the sort of like jittery neuroticism of that era um uh, so effortlessly uh yeah she she's just wonderful so i'm sorry i'm i'm babbling now I'm just oh, sort no, of you're varying, fine. Varying, varying from one to the other, but um, no. but yeah, the the, the sort of this, the the desperation um, of all of these films, uh, you know, it's sort of it's a matter of degrees and it's a matter of tones, but it's definitely very present in all of them. If that makes any sense. Yeah, well, bringing up Gordon Willis and then touching on Woody Allen and um, sort of this darkness in the humor at the time, it reminded me of that line from Crimes and Misdemeanors, you know, comedy is tragedy plus time. And I was kind of (laughs) wondering what was going on with uh, Neil Simon at the time he wrote The Out-of-Towners, because yeah, yeah, this is not what you would expect uh, from Neil Simon from this era. Um, I've told this story on the podcast a few times, but I'm such a big Neil Simon fan that like when I graduated high school, this is how cool I was, Jason. I used some <laughs> of my money and I bought two volumes, huge volumes. These books were like enormous. Volume one mm-hmm. and two of the Neil Simon plays. And oh yeah, I know yeah, this, yeah. Okay, read them cover to cover. I think they were like green yeah. and orange, probably printed yep. like 20 years before that. Uh, oh, totally. Still had them on the shelf because it's like, who's going to buy them? Well, I will. No, yeah. but uh, I love also that you brought up um, Sandy Dennis because earlier in the year, Ben David Grabinski um, suggested kind of the trippy side of Robert Altman in the 70s. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. we watched um, That Day in the Park and that was totally yes. amazing. And I yeah. know that's set in like, I think it was British Columbia, something like that right? Um, with Sandy Dennis. But when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is a different side of her. I mean, she, she is- She is really something, yeah. 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 And to the Neil Simon point too, one of the things that, that uh, was really revealing for me as well was that, one of the films I watched in that same, you know, in the same chapter, in the same research period, was um, The Prisoner of Second Avenue from 1975. That is another one. Woo. Yeah. yeah. Which, There's some which pain is, there. <laughs> yes. Which is a little, you know, in a, in a kind of fascinating way because it's him and Jack Lemmon again. Yep. Um, and it almost feels like sort of a spiritual sequel to The Out of Towners because, mm-hmm. you know, it almost feels like, um, you know, it's Anne Bancroft in for, for Sandy Dennis, but it really does almost feel like if this couple had gone a different direction, had decided wow. to stay in yes. New York um, for those five years. And then we sort of check back in with them as they're really losing their minds. Yep. Um, and again, that one, uh, you know, there's that one is informed by what was happening in the city around then, that there's a heat wave and there's a garbage strike again. And, you know, that all of that is you know present in that era. Um, but there's, you know, it's, it, it is, it is not quite to little murders level, 
mm-hmm. but there is a definite darkness in that movie. There is a definite sort of um, white man's entitlement slash rage thing happening with Jack Lemmon's character mm-hmm. in that movie. Yes. That is like, it's not in the taxi driver territory, but Alarming, it's in the same <laughs> park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially for Jack Lemmon, you're like, what the oh, hell? Yeah. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. absolutely. Yes, it isn't the same guy from you know uh, the apartment. Any of those? Yeah. Yes, it was a different. Or even time. the odd couple, you know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A hundred percent. And when you're talking about bizarre, of course, we have to talk about uh, Little Murders, which was. You know, it's crazy. There was a release of Columbia titles years ago. It was mm-hmm. like, I want to call it the Martini Collection, something like mm-hmm. that. Martinis and movies, I think. Yeah. And they were sort of putting out, it was around 60s and 70s, like the B titles or the C titles. Yeah. or These are trippy movies you probably didn't know. Like, I don't really know why they deemed it the Martini Movies Collection, but right. they did. And this one seemed like it would have been perfect for that series mm. i think there was another one with elliot gould um, getting straight was yes, in that collection was in yes. that collection 100 yeah and then when i was watching little murderers i'm like boy they could have just made a gould box set of this yeah yeah no kidding yeah, yeah. no I, I mean and one of the sort of enduring I don't know. Sometimes a, a certain image in a film will be so striking that just like whenever anyone mentions it after you see it, you you sort of flash on that one image. Yes. Um, and for me, it's just it's him on the subway covered in blood. The bloody. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, and and the way that everything about the playing of that scene is so uh, striking and so kind of upsetting, like, you know, the 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 the, the sort of shell shock of on him. And then the reaction of everyone around him who does not want to look or engage or even know, you know what yeah. I mean? um, which in a way also, again, ties it back to the incident, you know, which mm-hmm. is this whole movie. You know, one of the things that I love about that movie is the way that the kind of, uh, you know, that it's, that it's a physical um, uh, terrorism that's happening on the plane like, or on the, on the train that, you know, these two, you know, young hoodlums are, are very physically imposing and they're running around and they're swinging around and they're, you know, they're, and they're, they're, they have a a physical presence that's imposing, but they're also really good at uh, psychologically terrorizing these people of picking up on the little, the little buttons that they can push um, and the, the little ways that they can uh, make them feel inadequate or, or even turn like couples against each other. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? The, how, how sort of keenly they, they, they hone in on that stuff. Um, and that is always the fear on the subway when you've got a crazy person on the subway. It's like, okay, they're, they're crazy and they're going to talk to me and they're going to know what a failure I am. Like that's, that's a real like, genuine <laughs> thing. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the the entire just sort of like dread that's in, that's in the air as as all of the people on that train are sort of waiting for it to be their turn for abuse mm-hmm. i think becomes really palpable in a, in a really powerful way yeah i agree with you when it came to little murders i was kind of thinking that was a little bit like if hal ashby and kafka had like teamed up <laughs> and made a movie and like yeah. it might have been that but the incident yeah. Wow, that was really bleak. It was like, uh, what is that? Uh, was it No Exit? Something like that. The, yes. The, yes, yes. It kind of reminded me of that a little bit, or some of the 
um, Edward Albee uh, stuff from that era, like the zoo story. Like there were some things, mm-hmm. but when I watched it, I remember the first time I'm like, oh, come on, like this couldn't happen. Like I was a little bit more um, cynical about it. Then of sure. course, 24 hours later, you wake up and you see the story about that woman who was horrifically attacked, raped on, mm-hmm. the, uh, on the train and no one did anything for like 40 minutes. It's insane. Yeah. And uh, yeah. all of a sudden it made the incident look really timely again. Like shit yeah. doesn't change. And also yeah. like, no, that really would happen um, or it could. I mean, yeah. yeah, very scary. Yeah, very much so. I will say this as a stickler for, for accuracy. Um, the, you will never go even on an express and even on an express train as as long between stops as they go in this yeah, movie. Yeah, like, I wondered especially about that. The, Especially <laughs> the first, I think there's a stretch of about 35 minutes um, once everyone's kind of on the train and, and the, the, the terror begins. And I'm just like, there, there is no train on the city where you will go that long without stopping. Yeah. But, you know, we allow certain, <laughs> you know, we... we, we yes, dramatic license, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. Again, a very theatrical kind of work, you know, like yeah. that. You could stage the incident fairly simply, I think. Um, I think so. And, and yeah. pretty effectively as well. So, yeah. And the acting was incredible. Um, was this mm-hmm. Martin Sheen's first film debut? Film wow. debut. Yeah. It's yeah. Entirely. It's, like, yeah. It's like it's a, a great Johnny performance. Boy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great performance, but also, you know, uh, it's a startling performance to watch if you mostly know him from like his recent stuff, you know, if you know, mostly know him from like, you know, the gravitas of Judd Bartlett and that kind of thing yeah. to like see him really play this, 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 you know, again, physically and psychologically imposing uh, thug, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's not that far removed from what he did a few years later in Badlands. Like if you're, if you're versed yeah. with him in the seventies, that's true. This all, you know, that's, it's kind of in the same vein, but he's become such a sort of, uh, you know, wise older gentleman in, in so many films that it is startling to see him genuinely scary, like a genuinely scary, Very scary. guy, yeah. you know, and, and his accomplice as well. Like they're both, if, if they're, if you don't believe that they are terrifying, then the movie doesn't work at all. Um, and I, I believe, <laughs> I believe them from, from the beginning, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I know how busy you are with your work alone before you add on everything else with Fun City Cinema. So I want to thank you so much for doing this. I don't want to monopolize your entire evening. (laughs) There are so many amazing New York movies out there. I mean, obviously, you know, and your book is undoubtedly full of them. I know we discussed um, your favorites in the past, like Taxi Driver and Taking a Pelham 123. But are there any other or even just obscure releases, whether or not they're in this Criterion Channel collection that you'd like to recommend people check out? Yeah, well, um, one, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that's one that's easy to find in there and then, and then one uh, that's a little harder to track down. Um, the, there's a film in that collection that's called Born to Win. Um, which is weirdly like it's, it's, it's a a public domain title. So it's been sort of a mainstay of like, you know, dollar DVD bins and things forever. And I know a lot of us approach those titles with some hesitation. Um, but it's a really terrific, uh, really kind of scuzzy, um, early seventies sort of 
bleak comedy slash heroine drama um, oh, wow. with with George Siegel and uh, Karen Black and uh, uh, and a very young Robert De Niro in one of his uh, earliest film roles um, as a cop. It's surprising. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but it's like I say, it's incredibly easy to see. You can watch it on archive.com or you know, YouTube or whatever, but they have a really nice transfer of it up in that criterion bunch. And it is, it's it's George Siegel basically just plays this sort of like junky con artist. Um, so it's, you know, we're uh, he's another actor. We sort of in his later years we got used to seeing him, you know, as a certain sort of uh yeah. likable grandfatherly sort of character. But he's like he's really dodgy in this movie and really <laughs> believable and really great. One that I sort of discovered, it sort of stumbled upon and is very hard to find. You may have to go sketchy places to find it or whatever, but it's a film called Desperate Characters, which was uh written and directed by Frank D. Gilroy, who is the father of of Tony Gilroy, the famous, you know, screenwriter and filmmaker. Uh, and Dan Gilroy as well, and the, their brother John, who's their editor, and so forth. Anyway, um, it's a really uh, insightful and nuanced uh, marital drama. Um, Shirley MacLaine is the star of it. It's very much in the sort of um, has the same kind of feel as like an unmarried woman oh, or wow. uh, Kramer versus Kramer, or you know some of those kind of like. Uh, or some of the some of the heavier Woody Allen movies, like those sort of seventies kind of like Upper East, Upper West Side, well to doish sort of types, you know. It's like these are the sort of the seventies New York movies that aren't, you know, scuzzy Times Square movies because these people live in a kind of a different world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's but Desperate Characters is so beautifully written and so uh, so insightful about the complications of of long term relationships and and marriage and the temptations outside of it. And, uh, and Shirley MacLaine is just extraordinary. Like it's one of those, you, you never hear about it, but I would put it in, you know, the same sort of company as, you know, things like terms of endearment in terms of like her top tier performances. It's a really, really wonderful movie that nobody knows about. Wow. It's amazing that you uh, picked a Shirley MacLaine because yesterday I watched some came running uh, oh, God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, for a podcast I'm doing next week on Dean Martin. And so, oh, wow. yeah. So I just watched that again and it just, she blows you away every time you yeah. see it. Yeah. Like, wow. So now I need to check yeah. that one out. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll send you a digital file when you're ready to watch it because you may have trouble finding it otherwise. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, Jason, I want to thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I learned a lot. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure to chat. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.